You're listening to a Soul Fire Productions podcast. Hello, hello. Ooh. This highly, highly, highly requested conversation is finally here. I am so grateful for my amazing friend and expander. Ooh, does this woman expand me? Tiffany Louise is joining us today. She's been on the show before multiple times. She's been on Connor's show multiple times. She was at Ceremony Wellness Live if you had a chance to be there in LA. She is everything. Oh, I just love her so much. You know when you are around someone and you just feel better the moment you see them or feel them? That is what Tiffany does. She just makes you feel good by being herself. She shows you what's possible. She really lets you drop into you. And damn, that is powerful. And so I've been wanting to have this conversation around alcohol and choosing sobriety. And it only made sense to have her be the one to do this with because Tiffany has been an example for me since I've known her the last few years of what life can look like without a codependent relationship with alcohol. And it's taken me quite a while to get to this point, but I have not had a drink since New Year's Eve and quite frankly, have never felt better, never felt more open. I've never felt more guided and held and clear and open as a vessel for channeling and talking to my guides and being in conversation with my highest self. So as Tiff and I talked about this conversation, we really wanted to share both of our experiences of sobriety and how we got here. And Tiffany is just so incredible to join us because she is an LCSW. So she has been an addiction specialist for so much of her career and has really seen what can happen when the reliance on alcohol and different substances is not under control, is not understood, is not healed. And so we really talk through our experiences of choosing alcohol, how it showed up in relationships and sex and our fears around not drinking and what that would mean, good and bad, what we've seen in our lives and our families and how we came to these decisions and what life looks like on the other side. So I'm just so grateful to Tiffany for joining us and having this conversation so beautifully and transparently. I'm clearly in love with her, and I know you will be too. (laughs) Before we start this, I just wanted to remind you that if you have not yet checked out The Onyx, which is my monthly community I created, I would love for you to head over and see what is available. We have some new offerings, and I really wanted to make this financially viable as an option for people. So that you can have the type of sisterhood that Tiffany and I have together every week. So that you can have the types of conversations and 
ask yourself challenging questions and sit in circle with other women and really see yourself and feel held where you're sitting with world-renowned healers and softening and allowing yourself to be reinvented and to be in flow and to let go. There's so much goodness inside of the onyx. So I would love for you to check it out, see everything that we are offering collectively and what we are co-creating together. And I would just welcome you with open arms when it feels aligned for you to join us. And the link is in the show notes. All right, let's get to this one with my incredible girlfriend, Tiffany Louise. All right, Tiff. So I wanted to read this to you as we start this conversation, because this to me, as I was writing it, really explained my experience. Um, And so I just wanted to share it with you and our listeners before we begin this. So it goes like this. What are your crutches? What do you lean on to just get through, to make it a little easier, to bypass? I've leaned heavily on alcohol for more years than I care to admit. Over a year ago in my journal, I wrote, alcohol is a barrier for me right now. Coffee is also dragging me down and closing me off. My body has been telling me this for months, but I keep myself from the clarity and channeling by continuing to use them. I'm not functioning the way I know I can using these two drugs, crutches. If I really want to expand, it's time to let go. Funny, really, how I believe that the flowing of the Pinot into the glass actually brought me closer to myself, when in reality, the flow was only clogging my space with anger, resentment, pain, and lies. The bigger the pour, the bigger the separation. The more often the pour, the longer the waiting to return to myself. It's been over a month since I've had a drink, and yes, I can honestly say now I had a drinking problem, but it's never about the drink or the drug or the food. I had a fear of me, the vast depths of me, the unknown parts, the dark parts, the light parts, and all the little crevices in between. Once I made the choice to see and be with all of me, it was easy to stop the pouring, and when your brain and heart are clear, it's much easier to see that the thing you were fearing most all along was never anything to be feared. The relief of freedom from fear and excitement for what's possible when we trust ourselves. Oh, it's juicy. So damn juicy. So thank you. I love it. I got goosebumps (laughs) because I know so many people listening can relate to it. Yeah, that's powerful. Thank you for listening. Yeah, I just, um, when you're doing something constantly, you don't really realize what you're doing because it becomes a routine and it just becomes a part of your day. Oh, five o'clock, time to pour a glass of wine, done working, time to do this. Oh, it's been a long day, time to do this. And you don't think. And I always would say, oh, I just have a couple glasses. Well, a couple glasses seven days a week for months and years on end is a lot of alcohol. No matter how you try and talk your way out of that, it is. Yeah. And I just realized like I keep doing this thing that keeps me further and further from myself. And when am I going to say enough is enough? I want to access me. I want to be with me rather than numbing out and hiding and escaping. And it's a hard conversation to have with yourself. And I kept having it and I kept going back and I kept going back. And then I finally was like, no, I don't have to have this. I don't need this. And I don't want to be in this codependent relationship anymore. Yeah. 
wow. And it's a tough conversation to have because it's loaded. It's loaded with shame and with messages about what constitutes a problem. And it's so complicated. And so we think that if we even like peer behind the curtain, even a little bit, we're tiptoeing into like problem rehab. And even those words get a lot of energy around them that I don't think is actually accurate. You know, we see rehab and treatment as like bad. And as someone who's been behind the door for a good part of her career, I see it as amazing and healing and profound and courageous and freaking brave. And so there's so much there that if we even like tiptoe into like, let me examine this for myself, shame, stories of belonging. And it's the most like acceptable woven into every part of the fabric of our culture behavior. And so when we start to think about how to not do this in a world where it seems like everybody is, it's, it can be really unsettling. And then it's just much easier sometimes to go with the flow and like go to the next party and sit at the dinner table and have the next drink and blend in and not confront all that discomfort. So, and I think what I'm so excited about, I was actually, you know, I did a bunch of podcasts about this, like, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And I was not in the same energy, I think, because I had been talking about this subject for so long in my career. I didn't feel quite ready to have this conversation be a big part of like me personally, publicly. And I feel so much more ready for it because I've, you know, um, just been willing to step into that role as someone who's going to more actively talk about this in her life. And it feels like it's time. I feel like there's this awakening that's happening with so I'm hearing this in all of these conversations and so many friendships, friends saying, oh, I just stopped and I feel so much better. It's been talking to me. It's been nagging at me. I mean, people who are responding to me like never before. I, I, I literally got more messages posting about alcohol in the recent months than anything I've ever posted before. Women, hundreds and hundreds of women saying, I saw you drinking mocktails on your vacation. And ever since you gave me permission to, I didn't have a problem, but it helped me have permission. Like I don't have to do this. I can be okay on a date and not do this. And I'm there. And it's so hard for me because I'm uncomfortable dating. And how do I go on a date and explain to him why I don't want wine? So it's, we're ripe for this. Um, I think we can't have this conversation about wellness and all the other areas that we are, and then ignore this because that's what's happened. We've been obsessed with gluten and dairy and EMFs and like all this stuff. Meanwhile, we've just been pouring this toxic chemical in our bodies and we've not wanted to talk about it. And there's a lot of reason for that. And there's a lot of incentive for us not to talk about this. Um, the people that profit off of this. Um, and I don't even think, I don't even want to vilify them. I think that it has become something that is so normalized. We don't even know the ways in which it's making us sick. So, you know, long rant on why. I relate to what you're saying and I know so many women will. And I think it's just, I feel ready now to have this be more, you know, I just was like mocktail. Like I didn't really feel the need to always be talking about it, but I feel like it's, it's much more important for me to create more space for this conversation more consistently because people seem to respond to the dialogue that I have around it because it's coming from, a, I, I really hope, and I, people say this, but it really is coming from a no judgment 
an offering like, Hey, there's another way. Um, Hey, try this on for size. Hey, let's get curious instead of shame and labels and, you know, all of the mess that keeps us from looking at it. Exactly. And I love that because that's what this whole show and this whole conversation is about is this is not about judgment. This is not about condemning someone for their Mm -hmm. decision-making no matter where they are on the spectrum. This is about having alternative conversations and getting curious, just like you said. And as you were talking about all of that, I even forgot this. I was dating this guy years ago and all we did was drink. We went to dinner and we drank. We went to the wineries and we drank. We sat on his deck and we drank. I mean, we were always drinking wine, always. And it was great wine. So it was, it felt fancier. I don't know. I wasn't, you know, taking shots in a club. I was drinking was nice wine. Yes. It was an aesthetic. Yes. It was a sexy vibe. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think that that energy pulls a lot of people in because we, we, we equate that with the like high quality and like, did you know where this bottle is from? And yeah, it's a whole mood. It is. <laughs> and it's such a mood that I had only ever had sex with him while drinking or drunk. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm so glad you brought that up. Girl, that was on my list of things to get to for months was having sex with this guy. Wonderful person out of your body, but out of my body and yeah. had no idea until one day I was like, Ugh, I just really don't want to drink tonight. Did not drink. And we had sex and it was some of the worst damn sex I had <laughs> ever had. And I, as it was happening, Connor's upstairs. I don't really want him to hear this part, but the guy's going down on me. And I remember laying in the bed, looking down at him thinking, oh dear God, is this what you've been doing this whole time? Because this is awful. I had no idea because I was drunk for months. And then like we had conversations when I was sober after that. And I'm like, what are we even talking about right now? Because we only bonded while drunk. And it just became this thing. And I finally got out because I I mean, he wasn't doing anything bad to me. It just was not a relationship that I needed to be in and had no idea until I took a step away and got sober and was like, oh, this is not for me. And then I started thinking about how many times in my life, especially in college and my early 20s, was I doing that where I thought someone was attractive because I was drunk or I thought I should be in this situation because I was drinking and was not thinking clearly. And I, again, like you said, was so disconnected from my body. I was not with myself. I had become something else, something alternative outside of me. And the decisions were so out of integrity. Yes. Because that's the function of alcohol is it disinhibits. It takes that breaking system in your brain that helps us conduct ourselves according to use and it takes your foot off the brake and it causes us to go into, you know, disinhibited land of poor decision-making and, you know, welcome to the freaking club on that in your twenties. Right. Um, but yeah. And I love that you're bringing up the sex piece because I think that's such a big part of alcohol's entanglement for women. Cause when I really think about like, okay, so for me, I have this in my family system you know, my mom was very vocal about this. I was been in therapy since I was a kid. So if I knew the risk, why did I drink? What was so strong at that point when you're a teenager that compels you towards it? And it's that, I mean, that's the stage where you're like, 
belonging to your peer group is more powerful than anything. And when you're sold a story that if you do this and you're the fun, sexy, you know, edgy girl who's like drinking when she's 17, when their parents are gone, that's what pulled me in is the story of you will be enhanced by it. And how many women correlate sex, intimacy, relationships, dating with alcohol. Like they can't even imagine being on a date or having sex for the first time without drinking beforehand. And my, you know, when I started to like, obviously over the years and really have this conversation with thousands of people over a lifetime of work, it's like, if you're only sexy when you're altered, are you sexy? Mm. And is it actually sexy? Or are you believing that you're sexy? Cause is it sexy to actually not feel the act of sex, which is what happens when you're drunk? Like the likelihood that you're going to orgasm when you're intoxicated is much, much lower. Like all of that, you know, all of that sensitized part, alcohol sedates that. Um, and so it, it's really a difficult thing to unravel for us as women, just how tied we are to this idea of, and it's been programmed into us and programmed into us and sex in the city and cheersing with the martinis and the, like, you know, the sexiness of it. But when you really look at it, when you, if you really had the lens of truth, is it sexy to see the girl falling down in the bathroom? Is it sexy to wake up with a pounding headache? Is it sexy to not be in your body and be off somewhere else when you're having an intimate act with someone, you know? So these are the things that we really have to like, we've been sold this, we've been programmed in this way. The reality is it's the opposite. <laughs> like Glamorizing hangovers is the weirdest oh. fucking shit to me. And I've never said that out loud or thought about this until right now, as you were talking about that. We glamorize and glorify being hungover. How hard did you party last night? How late did you stay up? Damn, you oh look like God. trash. Ordered Dunkin' Donuts yes. and Uber Eats. How uh, big of the sunglasses yes. can I wear? And the hat and the like messy hair because I'm all oily and gross from being out and doing the thing. And I mean, when I lived in New York at 23 years old, you did boozy brunches all day long. I remember getting there at 10 a.m. and I didn't leave until 6 p.m. and I had been drinking the whole time and it was a badge of honor. Yes. And it's that age when we're so vulnerable to wanting when that all of that identity formation stuff is happening from, you know, our teenage years on, like, who am I in the world? You know, and, and this goes back to the gaze of like, how am I seen and how does that equal my worth? Which boy likes me on the playground? Which one's giving me Valentine's at school? Which one's thinking I'm cute at, you know, prom? And then it goes into college and into the world beyond. And we are looking for a way to be enough. And this prototype of the fun, hilarious girl who like gets a little sexy when she drinks and then like think gets all the boys' attention in college. I mean, it's so... We, we show that in the movie, but what, what we rarely show is the reality of the cost of that, the consequences of that, the heartbreak of that, this whole thing of like, let kids be kids. Kids are making decisions at a point where they don't have a fully formed prefrontal cortex and a braking system operated. They're making decisions that can ultimately affect the rest of their lives. And we've normalized this culture of like blacking out on a 21st birthday. Um, 
if you black out, and that's the other thing, blackouts, like blackouts are so normalized. If you're blacking out, you are one and on the bell curve of like, not bell curve, on the curve of what happens in the stages of intoxication in a human body, you're one step from coma and death. Once you black out, you're at the edge. It's not like blackout level one, two, and 10. It's that close. Um, and then, you know, as someone who has watched those consequences come to fruition in thousands of people's lives and in my own family system, you realize that like, we are literally sexifying something that is a, is a toxic killer. Um, and that's where I'm always like, it's so strange to me because when, when you're an alcohol and an addiction counselor, like I have been, you know, you learn to see substances, behaviors all in the same world because it's the same function and it doesn't you could interchange whatever the chemical is but it's the same loop and when we protect alcohol in this way this this mommy wine juice club can you imagine oh my god first of all the only thing i ever think about is that when i birth some damn children out of this vagina i don't think i'm ever gonna want to drink again because Oh my God, the screaming and the not sleeping that can't possibly get better with alcohol. (laughs) It doesn't, it doesn't, but we're told it does. And then we believe it does because we're told it does. But can you imagine if we were like, let's alcohol kills more women than all the other drugs, but we would never say bad day with the kiddos gonna go, you know, smoke some crack upstairs and (laughs) meme about it on Facebook. We would never, it's like, that's wrong and it's bad and it's toxic and it kills you, but it's the exact same thing. Not for everybody, not for every mom who has an afternoon glass of wine, but for many, many hundreds of thousands of people every year in this country. So what I'm asking for, again, coming back to that first statement that we made is not to judge. I hope when you're listening to this conversation, you're not looking at yourself with shame or horror. You know, even my comment about like, you know, the if you're in the mommy wine club, it's okay. We've all said and done things that when we know better, we can examine it and try to do better. So no shame here. The, the, the point is to really like bring something forward and have it illuminated for ourselves in a way that we didn't actually realize it. It's the water in the fishbowl. We've all just been little goldfish swimming in it and until you like come up for air and grab a little gulp of air at the surface you don't know what you're in so again as we i just want to really say that to anyone listening um we all know shame doesn't do anything to change any of us um curiosity does compassion does um I'm grateful for the relationship that I had with alcohol at times. It taught me a lot. It gave me greater compassion. I'm grateful for, you know, the family history that I had that allowed me to have more compassion and understanding of what my clients and patients have been going through for these years. So I'm, I'm sitting on, you know, a place of peace and health that took me a long time to get to. Um, so I want you all to remember that if you're in a point on your journey where you're not quite there yet, this is this is after a lot of that journey. Just a brief little pause here to share how I am nourishing myself and interesting to be talking about this as we discuss alcohol and releasing that codependence and need for it in our lives because 
the two brands that I'm about to share with you have actually been incredible catalysts in me choosing sobriety. And they have really helped me make that shift. They've also helped me release addiction with caffeine and coffee specifically. Organifi came in at a time when I needed something super nourishing and clean and healthy every morning to release coffee. I had this need for coffee and it was wreaking havoc on my system. And so I started drinking the Organifi chocolate gold and mm, sister, you know, because you've been here, this is my fave. It is filled with superfoods and turmeric and mushrooms and lemon balm and ginger. And it helps with deep sleep and recovery and is frothy as hell when you add some coconut butter in there, honey, and blend it up real nice. And goodness, does it taste good. So that got me off caffeine. And then I transitioned into not drinking anymore. So I started having chocolate gold at night. And this was the mug in my hand when I felt like I had been relying on a glass of wine in my hand and was choosing not to put something toxic into my body, but choosing to nourish myself. And I'm so grateful to have a company that believes in nourishment from a holistic perspective and really caring for ourselves from the inside out. So if you are curious and maybe sober curious, and want to get your hands on some Organifi, my discount code is 20% off now because they are the best and love all of you. So if you go to Organifi.com, it's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, use the code Kelly T, you'll get 20% off. And let me tell you, you'll feel so much better drinking Organifi. Trust me. Just trust me. I also want to introduce you to Element. So, again, kind of funny talking about this company because (laughs) as you drink alcohol, what I felt was super dehydrated. That's kind of the normal thing that happens. And your body is just deficient and often feels so awful and depleted. And As I stopped drinking, I noticed that I really wanted to replenish my body more. I wanted to focus on what I was putting into my body. And when I found Element, I was so excited for so many reasons. First of all, electrolytes, period. If you sweat, you need electrolytes. I sweat, I work out, I sit in the sauna, I go on hikes. I'm naturally a more hot person, so I'm sweating. It is so important to replenish your body with electrolytes. I also fast. I intermittent fast, don't really drink or eat breakfast in the morning. So having electrolytes while you're fasting, also so helpful. And I love carbs. It's a thing. They're delicious. Electrolytes help curb your carb cravings. Not that you shouldn't eat carbs. Not saying that. But if you're a snacker, like Connor and I, (laughs) it is really nice to actually give your body what it needs because oftentimes we think that we need to eat this thing when in reality we're thirsty or we're deficient in some form 
And electrolytes are an amazing way to rush so many good things to your system. So I am a huge fan of the citrus and the raspberry and the habanero. Mm -hmm. It is spicy as hell. Just warning you. Be careful. (laughs) But it's so good. And I'm so excited to be partnering with Element um, because it's a company truly just like Organifi. I believe so deeply in Element and the hydration that they bring. And again, with the recovery, how incredible to nourish your body in such a simple, easy way. You drop it in water, shake it up and go on your way. I have at least one a day and I feel so much more hydrated, especially living in dry ass Denver. So here's our incredible offer for you. If you go to drinkelement.com, that's drinklmnt.com slash Kelly T. You can use the code and you will get an eight pack sampler of Element for just the price of shipping. So if you're in the US, it's five bucks. Five bucks, you get to try all the flavors. So delicious. Um, And I absolutely just believe so wholeheartedly and being hydrated, it will change the game for you. All right, let's get back to this one with Tiff. I remember last year. Maybe it was you who posted something or someone else, but I remember reading a statistic or seeing something about the number of um, moms specifically who are in the carpool drop-off drunk at 8 a.m. Yeah. And I remember having this feeling of, you've got to be kidding me. I had no idea that was so prevalent. Not that you've got to be kidding me. I can't believe people are doing this because I understand but I just didn't realize how prevalent it was. And I just started really thinking about the way we operate while hiding these things. Like I'm showing up as a mom, I'm present and bringing my child to school while I am silently suffering so much and needing to drink alcohol like it's coffee. Yeah. And then I had a day where last year was so hard for me and was in a very dark place. And I remember it was an afternoon and I've never told this to Connor because it's so, to me, it feels so embarrassing. But I remember pouring myself, I don't know if it was whiskey or wine, but I put it in a copper glass so that when he came home from the gym or wherever he was, he would have no idea that I was drinking alcohol in the middle of the afternoon. And then it all made sense to me. I thought, okay. Like, okay. How, how slippery that slope is. So and how we find quick. ourselves in circumstances we once judged. Yeah. Yep. Or not judged, but just couldn't imagine occupying that place. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's her. That's not me. Oh, I would never do that. Oh, this. Oh, that. And it's like, oh, and then you have the drink in your hand at 2 p.m. on a Wednesday and you're like, oh, now I get it. Yeah. Because her is all of us. And yes. as someone who has worked in every setting really imaginable except for residential, Um, I've worked in places where I used to have to have a police escort to the group because it was so dangerous for me to get there. And then I've worked in places with where the wealthiest people were able to receive treatment and it looks the same, no matter your race or your socioeconomic class or your age or your, you know, friendship group or your, the part of your country is, um, you know, addiction and the way this, these chemicals impact our body, it just doesn't discriminate. And I can't tell you how many women, you know, 
it happens in every way. It happens where people know the minute they take the first drink, my brain lit up like the 4th of July. The minute I took that first drink as a teenager, I felt like I could be myself. I, I felt disinhibited and I loved it. And then there are people who I didn't really care for it. I couldn't care for it. And then I'm 40 and I'm so stressed and my kids and I started to drink with the moms in the afternoon and then it develops then. It's like it, we never know when it's going to come for, for us. Um, and if you have it in your genes, like I do, you're four times more likely to have this experience yourself. And, and it's like playing with kindling and match. Um, and, and, and we, then it's a progressive disease. If, if we have developed the disease of addiction and it, and it has a predictable and pretty reliable course, it's like called the Jelnick curve about how we, you know, bottom out. Um, and the codependence word that you brought up is really key because the codependent cycle for those of us in relationship with people who are struggling with addiction happens the exact same way. So real and it doesn't. And that, that's the reason I brought up the part about the drop off is it's the mom that's your best friend and you don't know. It's the, you know, person who's picking up your kids from school and um, it's real and it's killing women in droves. And so if we are going to, if you are going to use alcohol, I've chosen to not, and it's my fucking favorite thing ever. And I, I don't even, I don't think anyone could pay me enough to drink. Like it's not something that I want in my energy or in my body. Um, and that's my intention for forever. Um, but it's, you know, even if you're going to drink and you, you don't feel like you have a problem, Let's just have this honest conversation about what it is, what it can be, the potential risks involved, and let's communicate about it in a responsible way. Mm-hmm. Let's not talk about it in grandiose terms. Let's not gram- glamorize it and let's not sexify it so that when we are at the most vulnerable, cognitively, developmentally, we don't start pushing young children like we were. <laughs> into this lifestyle that they can sometime, sometime in the future find themselves struggling to get out of. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I relate to that um, deeply. And, I, and I'm, again, sure so many women on the call do. Yeah. Or people, yes. men and women. Yes, completely. And I, a couple of things come up for me there is my parents, uh, my mom's passed away, but my parents for a lot of my life, I believe were what I would call functioning alcoholics. Like just drank a lot. And to a point where it was an inappropriate amount that made me feel really uncomfortable. And I was taught from a very young age that you drink every night and you drink to a point where you're just kind of melting and not present. And there was slurring of words and not remembering things. And I think part of me not wanting to drink anymore. I don't have either of my parents in my life now. And it feels like I no longer had to be like them or do Mm. this thing that was almost how I connected because I was always drinking around them because that's kind of what we did. And, and I honestly would start drinking to cope with being around them because I, I just felt like I can't handle this. So let me just have a couple glasses of tequila to numb myself out of this situation with people who are numbed out. 
And it just perpetuated this really horrible cycle for me. And I think that that is part of why I finally came to the realization after years of asking myself why I do this. It was, this was a, a matter of relation to my parents. And this is how I was taught to view the world and experience the world. And I no longer had to do that because I didn't have that connection. Yes. I mean, I have chills again, because I think depending on how we've grown up and, and viewed alcohol, we're communicating with our children about what, what this relationship is. Is it a ritual? Is it a tradition? Is it a celebration? Is it a mourning, you know, alcohol and funerals? I mean, you know, God, it's, it's, a it's, it's, becomes this thing that we learn, this is just what you do. And this is how I connect. And this is how I be a grown up. And this is how I come home after, you know, a long day. And this is how I unwind. And it's, it's so powerful that we recognize how we've been taught because some of us have grown up in really abusive environments where alcohol was anger and violence. And some of us have grown up in environments where it was mom just floated off and wasn't present. And some of us have grown up where it's, you know, um, secret. And, and there's so many ways that this can show up in all of our lives. And so it's really important to, to check in like we do with any part of healing. What's the programming I got with curiosity, right? Because I, I truly believe that our parents' generation, I mean, when I talk to my mom and sh- she'll be okay with me sharing this about her, um, healing journey, um, with alcoholism in our family system. It's like when she was our age, this was like, not a thing. It was everybody drank Pabst blue ribbon. And that's what they did when they got home from work. And that's what they went to the bar on a Friday night and got shit faced on holidays. And it was just a way of life. And so we're not so many generations removed where this wasn't even a conversation where codependency wasn't even a commonplace word. So I think what we have to do when we want to heal is, is check in. What were the stories I was told? What did, what, how did it get communicated to me? And do I, as you know, an adult or as a young adult, or you know, what is the definition that I want to have? And sometimes it's really difficult to do that unless we see the full breadth and width of what addiction, chemicals, substances, alcohol can do to you. Um, because I think that you know, most of us know somebody who struggled with this. I think we're at a point statistically where there's very few people who don't have a friend or a family member or a colleague that has struggled with addiction. It is, it is so commonplace. Um, and people are much more vocal about it than they used to be. It's still a lot of stigma there. And the more that we have conversations like that, the more we can lift this, but it's, uh, that's, the first step is to look what you did with your family. How was this programmed? And just like it was a download on a, you know, on your iOS, you can upgrade at any point and have a new operating system and examine what its relationship is going to be with you in the future. And that's what you've done. That's what I've done. And, um, and, and it's subversive, it's counterculture, but the more that we make this like a fun, great place to be hope, my hope is, is that it becomes less so you're sober and super fun. So you, uh, you yeah, are the goal, I, I need, to, I need to, but I had to work to be embodied, yes. to be in my body, to like have 
a hundred percent sober sex all the time. And to, and, and I have a different relationship with alcohol. You know, I definitely drank when I was younger. Um, and I really recognize I did that to fit in. I hundred percent did that because it was the message that got me cool with friends and boys and fun Tiffany. And I never actually liked how it felt in my body. And so we all have different relationships. Some of us light up, some of us love the melty feeling. Some of us, we have to be honest with ourselves about how we felt. And I, and as I watched it just destroy people's lives in my family and like the people I loved, the patients I loved that lost this battle with addiction, the, the watching the fighting tooth and nail to create a healthy life um, after struggling and getting into recovery. I mean, you can't do that for 10 years um, and not start to just, I mean, be disgusted by it. Yeah. And so I'm not in judgment, but for me, I see it for what it is and the, and the, and the possibility it holds to really hurt people. So my sobriety is, was a different thing in that I had not been drinking really for years. Anybody who knows me knows that for, for many, many years before I got sober, I was the least, I was the person drinking the least in any room. It was actually a problem for me in past relationships because I would, it was always like, why don't you let loose? And I'm like, I'm high on life. I'm perfectly fine. I don't need to be drinking all night. And I would look like I was, and, and I couldn't do the work that I did and know my family history. And then just like roll the dice. Um, but I was still doing it here and there. It was like at dinners with girlfriends because that's what you did. And I would, I would sip it and I could just feel it. The healthier you get, the more you know when something's off. And I was like, why am I still doing this? Even if it's so few times, what's keeping me hold, held, holding on to this? And, it's, and it was really this like, I didn't realize it was operating, but it's like, it's what you do unless you have a problem. Mm. Mm. And there, and that's really there, right? Sobriety is really reserved for if you have a problem. And I think what we need to do is open this conversation for, you don't have to have a problem. You, you might only be able to drink one glass, but if you wake up feeling freaking anxious as shit, that's the problem. That's the, it doesn't jive in your chemistry and it, and it doesn't for any of us, frankly, um, we can just tolerate it better. Um, so yeah, for me, I always want to say that not that I'm setting myself apart because I don't want to make it. I really, the people who have worked to get sober and have fought tooth and nail, I'm not taking anything away from their experience and their journey and their courage and like making it sound easy. Um, but for me, it was because it was this wake up of like, I actually hate it. Why am I still doing it here and there? And then it was this freedom of being like, I don't have to do that anymore. And, and being, and it took me to get to like, you know, in my thirties to be like, I don't give a shit. If my friends have a problem with it, they really aren't my friends and no one does. Um, and so, yeah, so I just felt like it was important to say that, you know, for the context from which I'm coming from to speak to the people who don't fit that box either, who are like, well, I don't really have it, but then why are you doing it? Then let's, let's ask that question. If it's not a problem for you, then why are you still drinking about it? Why do we have such a hard time saying no more? Why do we have such a hard time thinking about no more on the date or at the wedding or at the whatever? Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is the exact conversation we had in one of my women's circles this last month. The girls were asking me about me choosing to not drink anymore. 
and just my process of decision-making and how I came to this and my fears and what it's been like. And one of them reflected back to me that she feels really awkward and uncomfortable when she's with her friends and that she actually doesn't really feel like drinking, but she doesn't want to be the sober one because they're all drinking and she doesn't know how to relate or communicate in that scenario, which I totally understood because I have been there too. She also shared that she is scared of who she is going to see within herself if she is sober. Who who do I have access to within me? What do I get to see if I am not constantly drinking? And not the bad parts, not what she would consider the shadow side or the bad parts of herself, but the good stuff. This fear of success, this fear we have of feeling good, this fear of being healthy and having glowy skin and nice hair and all the things that alcohol keeps us from, which is so silly. But as women, these are the things that we fear oftentimes. Yeah. And so the fullest expression of who we are. Exactly. And we really sat with those questions of what is it that you're so scared of and what would it look like if you didn't drink? And you let your friends do what they want to do. What would that look like of just showing up and being present and maybe being the example for them that they don't need alcohol either to be fully expressed or to have fun? Yeah. And I think that's where a lot of women are. What's there and what's there is often some sort of change. Yes. And it's Ah. some sort of like, if I show up there and I'm the only sober one, will I want to be there anymore? And if I'm not there anymore, what about my belonging? And if I, those aren't my friends that are capable of transitioning the friendship to something sober and meaningful, then who are my friends? And it's, it, there's so much when we open up to those parts of ourselves and we don't have access to a community of people who are like-minded um, and we would feel safe to be that expression of ourselves it makes sense that playing small or staying in that mold feels safer. Um, and it's, and it's, it's uncharted territory because a lot of us don't have role models for people living this way because there's the, you know, the Gabby Bernstein's and the people who are sober living this way out loud, but they're living that way from a recovered standpoint. And so I think sometimes people can't, relate to that. Well, like I didn't end up there and I didn't have those challenges yet, yet. Cause I know that that's a yet possibly for me as well. Um, so it's having an example of that in what you're sharing and what I share, you know, I just wonder what my life would have been like if I had a real set of role models of women who made it look fucking rad to be sober who were like, I wouldn't dream of that. I have, I love my body and I want to feel great. And I've got this invested in my, you know, athletic career or whatever. I, I, I can think of nobody, um, in my childhood that I knew was like a fully embodied sober woman to look up, look up to. There was, I didn't have that. Yeah. I feel the same way. I mean, I'm half Mexican. So I did the whole Mexican upbringing with beer and tequila everywhere, all times. One of the like jokes my mom would always tell is that my grandfather let me walk around the pool when I was two years old. And I drank out all, all of the beer bottles that had been left around and he just watched me do it. And that's a whole (laughs) other, yeah, that's a whole other story, but I was drunk. I was, I couldn't walk in a straight line. And my mom looked over and she was like, 
what is going on? And my grandfather is laughing in the corner and she takes me over there and she goes, dad, what is going on? She goes, he goes, oh, she was just drinking out of all the beer bottles. And it was just like a funny thing that this two-year-old was drunk or that when I was little, I would sit at the table and I would bang on the table and said, I want beer. I want beer. And that was just like a normal thing. Yes. So what chance do I have to believe that being sober is quote unquote normal? Yes. Yes. It was the water in your fishbowl. Yeah. And for so many people it is. Um, And it's, and yeah, hopefully this is the gateway to having a different dialogue for, for younger women to see and for families to start a new um, way of relating to alcohol in their systems and in their celebrations and in their grieving and all the, all the ways that it, it ties into life. Yeah. And I mean, it breaks my heart for that little girl and she, we are good students of our environments. And so now the bravery that you have to examine that and to look at that was what they knew as normal as well and create a new normal for you and for your future children and for your, you know, audience. That's all we can do is look back, have compassion for what we didn't know better and now learn to, to do better. Um, and that's what every generational cycle needs is that change maker, the person who unhooks from those train tracks and goes off in a different direction. And for me, that was my mother. And so I am the child of a mother who changed the cycle. And so then I have this experience. And then if, and when, if we do decide to have children, then, or are able to, then that will be the next cycle of, you know, and it's, this is how we change generational trauma and addiction and pain. Is it considered So for you and I, would we consider ourselves sober or is that for people who go through recovery? I think people have different relationships to the word. Um, I, I say sober, um, but I think people think it's recovery, but I don't need to delineate because I don't think there's shame associated with recovery. So it's sort of like you're sober. If you had to get, get sober, you need to be sober. So I think there's still some of that tone, but I think you could, it could also be just, I choose not to drink or I, you know, um, there's sober curious movement that's going on. You know, there's this gray area drinking movement where people feel like they fall somewhere in in the middle. Um, and I think that sometimes those labels are the things that keep people from getting better. And so I'm a big, you know, proponent of like, if you are examining it, examining it at all, then it's a thing. And it, we don't have, it doesn't matter what degree the thing is, then examine it with curiosity and compassion and take the next right step to see how you can change your relationship with it. But yeah, I call myself sober, you know, when, and, and it's funny cause like I say it all the time to everyone because I have no shame. You know, my doctor's like, blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, no, no. I haven't had a drink in three and a half years. I, you know, I don't like it. You can see like, sometimes there's this like, Oh, she's, had to get sober. You can see that energy yeah. of it. And I don't, um, I don't often try to change their mind. Cause if they thought that I, I don't think that's anything to be ashamed of, even though that wasn't my experience. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I was sitting with the idea at the end of last year that I didn't want to drink at all this year. That was my intention because we were going to start our fertility 
um, testing and potentially, um, going through the IVF process this year. And so I wanted my body to be a damn temple. And I'm like, I am committed to this little child. And so that's where I was. It wasn't, um, it wasn't necessarily a lifetime commitment. I wasn't saying I'm never going to have a drink again. And now I'm just a little over a month in and my initial reason for not committing forever. One was I think that's a lot to commit to. And I knew myself, oops. And two, I always wanted to go to Italy and go wine tasting. And that's something I had looked forward to for so long. And so I just didn't want to write that off. And now five weeks in, I'm like, I think I can go to Italy and go see all the things and not have to be drunk. (laughs) Like, I think I can still have an amazing experience without this attachment to drinking every wine ever made in Italy. in order to have a great experience. And it's so interesting the way we go into things. And then when we really allow ourselves to be present with it, what can come forward? Because my, my need to be drunk and my need to do these things and feel like, oh, that trip only meant something if I drank every day is different now. Yeah. And we need, and I love that you brought this up because for me, I'm a really big believer in the 12 steps and AA. I think sometimes we move into this realm of the pendulum swings, right? Uh, And healing and in personal development and the therapy world. And I think there's this movement of like old school, bad, new school, great. And I'm like, unless you've actually worked in it, you understand that there is old school and new school. And I see the breadth and width of what, an AA program or a traditional treatment center can give you because we were praying and we were higher powering at whatever that looks like for you, whatever that looks like for you. Cause that's true AA programming. But one of the biggest is, is a freedom of expression of what that looks like for each individual. I had clients who their higher power was a tree in their backyard that made them feel connected to the full purpose of life. Um, for other people, it's G-O-D is a group of drunks and it was the group container that was their higher power. So I want to just give that disclaimer. But when I say this, it's like the big part of the, the, the AA movement is this idea of one day at a time, because when we, when we see too far into the future, it's completely overwhelming. I think this is what happens for a lot of people with marriage. Um, and a lot of things like, how can I possibly know that I'll want that in 20 years, you know? So I I think that's a really important point. You don't have to know what this looks like. You just have to know that for today is ingesting this for my highest good for today. Will I feel better or will I feel worse? Or will I feel temporary, temporarily better? And then in, in a neurotransmitter deficit for the next two or three days afterwards, because I've splurged my allotted amount in my brain and then I'm going to be without that's all we need. And then I believe the staircase gets revealed. Um, but I think when we know, when we think we have to figure it all, all out, you have to be like Tiffany committed to forever that you don't want to do it. No, mm-mm. all it is, is just this moment. And you don't have to know what you're going to do in Italy or in your wedding. You're going to live your way into that answer. And as you live and you start to feel how good it feels, what I found is oftentimes people then rewrite those scripts oh, I thought I couldn't have not. And one of the things in my patients, you know, the wedding was a big one. Like I won't be drinking champagne at my wedding and they live into sobriety and they're like, 
my wedding was the greatest thing ever. I was completely present for every moment. I felt every hug and every loving, every joyful dance. And I couldn't have imagined wanting it to, but wanting to drink at that wedding, but they couldn't be there on day one Mm -mm. or even day 10 or day 30. So you don't have to know. And the, and it's an illusion that we would know what the future holds anyways. I think that all or nothing thinking keeps a lot of us from just taking action today. So I'm glad that you said that and gave that example. Yes. You'll see what Italy holds for you. You'll see what the stages of your life hold. Exactly. But today it's a choice you're making for yourself now. I want to know what your wedding was like sober. Honestly, it was magical. Um, and, and I will say, you know, I, I work with so many women who are like, I just can't, I'm not in myself on dates and I've done so much work to be in me. Um, and so this, it was really a moment of like, I know I've been saying embodiment, but like, I was really there present to every human who drove and flown, flew and came and had tears glistening in their eyes as I walked down the aisle. And this man who is just the most exceptional human uh, man I've ever known. And I dance, I mean, I dance, I dance, I have fun. I go with my friends to clubs still, you know, part, like even when I was younger and I was quote unquote drinking, I would be going out for my birthday to like Paris club and like all these like big clubs in Chicago. And we would be like, my friend Gina reminded me of this. She was like, remember when we would be getting, like they would be buying us bottle service and we'd be pouring it out on the side, pretending we were drinking it, but we weren't. So like, I, I have always just, I'm a dancer. I love to be out. I love to be in the energy now, not in a place where I don't like to be around completely inebriated, unsafe, intoxicated energy. But like, I am somebody who can feel comfortable being on the dance floor sober. I know that's not easy for everybody, but for me, it was dancing with my friends and seeing the sunset. And I remember everything. Um, And I didn't wake up feeling like garbage. Who wants to wake up after their wedding feeling like garbage? I'm so glad that I didn't have to have that experience. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Getting on a plane, you know, wanting to puke, you know, anxious. No, I think I'm good. <laughs> yeah. And that's part of it too, as someone, anybody who's navigated any mental health issues, you know, I, my brain in the past has skewed to definitely more towards the anxious side of things. And that's something that I consider myself in recovery from and cons- constantly consciously being responsible for my health in terms of managing, you know, a, br- a brain that can go to anxiety. And if you are in healing from that or depression or bipolar or any of these uh, mental health issues, you begin to learn that you could, that those things and alcohol or chemicals just don't, don't drive. So for me, it was the, it was an anxious experience after I drank. So to wake up just like completely in peace, a little tired, but great, fully present. Yeah. Nothing better. That's beautiful. I want to just wrap this with, I think some things that I think are important to share as if someone is going down this path of starting to ask themselves questions around alcohol and why do I use it? Why is it important to me? What role does it have in my life? What's possible for me without it? All of those things. From my perspective, I would just like to share that healing and growth and awareness and awakening is not linear. And in my experience, I said this a little earlier, it was very up and down. It was very, 
I need this. No, I'm fine. Oh, I kind of want it. No, I don't want to have it. It's bad. It's good. And it just was this back and forth for so long. And I would just offer that anyone going down this path of questioning and change show themselves grace and know that it's okay if one day you decide, I'm not doing this anymore. And then you have a drink at some point. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you wrong. This is part of the process of learning and growth. And when it feels right and the time is right for you, you will make whatever decision is, is aligned and in integrity with your values and the woman that you choose to embody. And yes. if five years down the line, you make a completely different decision, that's also okay because that's called evolution and growth. And I just want to share that because I beat myself yeah. up so many times. I'm like, God, Kelly, you teach about these things. You teach about growth. You teach about all this stuff and you can't even commit to not drinking. What's wrong with you? Why are you so reliant on this? And I just want to throw that out the window and say, you don't need to beat yourself up because you're not broken. You're not wrong. This is learning. Amen. And, and I also want to say, I have never met anybody who chose this path for themselves to find themselves waking up in addiction, to have had a brain that responds to chemicals more strongly than someone else's. No one chooses this for themselves. We've been students of our culture. We've been, we've had genes that express, that activate this, um, activation in our body in a different way than other people. So when we really recognize, you know, and I'm a big believer and all of the nuance when we, uh, there's a point for me um, and, and everything that I've seen and witnessed, we're sort of a cucumber becomes a pickle. And once we've been pickled, it's really important that we get the support because it, it's at, you know, at any point it's deadly. But if you've, demonstrated to yourself in your life that you, this is impacting major areas, your work, your relationships, your physical health, your safety. Those are the times where we really want to reach out and seek help. And, and again, all you have to, to worry about is today. I love what you said. I think it's the most important thing. I always would say to my patients who would show up, you know, in the treatment center that I worked in for a really long time. And it's like, you don't have to be a hundred percent today. If you had to be a hundred percent to show up to uh, addiction treatment center, no one would be there. <laughs> um, yeah. you, you just have to be a percentage of you, that wisest inner knowing quiet part of you that is just so clearly look at this, something's not right here and reach out. You know, what, what would someone do if they're navigating this for themselves? Try to have that honest conversation. What does this really look like? How am I talking to myself around this? Am I making excuses? Am I looking at this through a lens that's not really the truth of what's happening for me with alcohol? How is it impacting me? How is it hurting me? What is it costing me? And when we have that information, then we can say, okay, what do I think I need to do to get support around this? You might not be that significant, but it might be like, I think I could work through this with a therapist, or it could be like, I cannot go a day without it. I really think that I need to reach out for help treatment center and get myself support. Um, because if you, if you are struggling with a significant issue and you don't get yourself adequate support, we're making it harder on ourselves. I always say it's sort of like lining the, the your bumper bowling. When you really know that you have a problem with addiction, what you want to do is get those bumper bowling lanes so you can shoot right down. You want to get as much support as you possibly can, um, in every form. Um, so 
it's, it's first getting honest with yourself with compassion and so much love. This is the, not the time for, you know, a dialogue of shame. It is the time for, to hold yourself with as much love because we can only be honest when we are feeling safe to do so. So I have to create a container of safety to be honest with ourselves and then create that external container of safety and whatever that looks like to support yourself in making the change. Because I think a lot of people really want to make the change and then they shame themselves themselves for not being able to, but I don't think it's a them thing. It's a, they just haven't enlisted the right kind of support. Yes. It's okay to ask for help. It is actually the bravest, most admirable thing you can ever do. I would not be sitting here, the person I am, without the therapists and the helpers and the healers. I mean, I'm looking forward to my therapy appointment tomorrow, 10 a.m., baby. You know, yeah. 38. I've been at this off and on since my first therapist when I was three. It is the, the most amazing thing you could ever do for yourself is asking for help. So, Tiff, I just want to thank you because you are the reason that I am here having this conversation today. You have talked about being sober since I've known you and so much in the last six months, I've just kind of watched you, um, and the way you embody the woman you are and the way you choose to live and you as an incredible friend, but also someone I truly admire from a distance. Um, you really show what's possible. You really walk the walk. So thank you. Thank you for just being yourself and being brave yourself and allowing all of us to learn from you and be in your energy because I think I know you are such a powerful force and it's really beautiful to get to learn from you and and everything that you share and you experience because I I don't have a lot of role models who are not drinking and I really look to you as I made this decision and I knew okay Tiffany does this Tiffany is incredible and stunning and successful and happy and full and she doesn't drink and so I could try this too. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for saying that. I receive it. And I just, I echo back to you, girl, you have, you have the bravest conversations of anyone I know. And I think it's really important for you five weeks in to be talking about this, because I also think we have this, this idea, like I can only talk about this when I'm at three years or five years or 10 years or got to uh, 365 days. No, any point in the journey, you, you have not arrived anywhere. Arrival is a delusion, right? So you being here in the process and your courage to always talk about what is true for you now, I, um, I truly do not see anybody having that kind of courage and bravery on the level that you do. And it's just so, so magical because you truly make people feel safe. You do. You make me feel safe. Every call you're on, we have a Tuesday night call with a bunch of our friends. But when when your energy is there, I just feel really um, safe in your presence. And that's what honest people give you, right? Honest people let you trust them. Um, So you do that for me. So I'm just so grateful. Every conversation we have um, is such a gift to me. So thank you. Love you. I love you. Thank you so much for listening to The Kelly Show. If you would like even more exclusive content, conversations with me, the ability to connect with women in a really sacred space to continue to challenge yourself, 
to create space for yourself and come back home to your truth and your knowing. I would love, love, love to have you inside the Onyx, the incredible space that I created for women like you who want more and who are ready to lean in to all of it. You can go to patreon.com slash the Kelly show. The link is in the show notes and I cannot wait to see you in there and hold that space for your growth. See you soon.